Stories connect us as humans. A well-told story can motivate and inspire us. Storytelling is the ultimate superpower. Be The Drop is a weekly podcast that investigates how to tell stories that engage. Join me, Amelia Veal, on our shared journey to become better storytellers. In episode 207 of Be The Drop, Dakani Ayubi provides fascinating insights into the human psyche and where our need to polarise has come from. We reflect on the differences and the similarities between the Western versus Eastern narratives, male versus female narratives and more. This is Dakani's version of Be The Drop. This episode was recorded during our TV documentary series, Transcending the Gender Narrative. For more details or to watch any of the episodes, go to transcending.narrativemarketing.com.au. My name's Dakani Ayubi. Uh, I'm a writer and a restaurateur. And we're sitting in one of those beautiful locations right now. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And you mentioned that you're a writer and as part of that, you presented at a conference called New Day and I was lucky enough to be there. And that presentation had a profound impact on me in this journey on creating Transcending the Gender Narrative. Um, Because at that time, I had successfully secured funding for the documentary, but it was working within a documentary title that I was feeling a bit uncomfortable with and at the time the documentary was going to be called Female in a Man's World and you spoke and as I was listening I had this moment where I was like yes it needs to be about transcending so I want to ask you some questions today and go into that but to start with though so I would love it if you could explain something you know Give us a bit of context about othering and us and them and how that can be detrimental to narratives. So for me, I kind of came to this idea around um, othering and the space that us and them fills in our lives individually and in society is how we define ourselves, how it kind of colours the hue of the stories we tell about ourselves. Because I am uh, obviously a female. Um, I was born in Afghanistan. My family migrated to Australia in the mid-80s at the time when Afghanistan was being used as a proxy canvas for the Cold War. And so my whole life I've kind of been attuned to, and then obviously living as a migrant in Australia from a very young age, I kind of became attuned to this idea of who are the stories speaking for? You know, who is the media speaking for? What faces can I see in novels, in literature? And, you know, what are the stories that are defining our shared collective human kind of culture? Um, who, who's telling those stories and, and why is it so often that my face is missing or my voice is missing? And by my, I don't mean me specifically, I just mean people who fall outside of, I suppose, a dominant narrative or um, the dominant population um, living in the West. And as I grew up and as I became more interested in writing and um, kind of submerged in my family businesses um, where we stay very close to, you know, our whole kind of business ethos is around sharing our story as Afghan migrants um, through food. So kind of using food as a means to look back into our own ancestry and history and to be able to share that in the community we now live in. So kind of everything in my life was lining up with stories and I just kind of understood the importance of narratives. Not just as like this soft cultural power, but this really important hard power in shaping the relationships in society and the outcomes, the peace, the stability or the lack thereof um, in society. 
And what's really interesting when you do kind of uh, look into it is the polarization began with this kind of uh, disconnection. And it was a disconnection almost from the natural universe around us. So you have this really interesting thing where in about 2500 BC in ancient Mesopotamian texts, you start to see the beginning of this disconnection from the natural universe, where there's this notion of master and slave, the earth becomes just clay separate to us, whereas before that, in a lot of like indigenous cultures, humans were part of the ecosystem. They were part of the natural world. You didn't own land, you were just passing through it, it sustained you, <laughs> you know, and, and what you gave back to it was also sustainable. But then slowly, slowly, as we became more complex and we had more to guard and we had more to lose, we started to separate ourselves out from the natural universe. And then that began to justify the separation of ourselves out from people who didn't look like us. Um, and so my thesis is, and my understanding of othering and kind of creating a shrinking sense of we that rules over more and more people, um, an elite class that rules over more and more people is that the seeds of it were there when we started to um, no longer identify with the universe and the natural world that we came from. Mm. There is so much in there that I want to unpack <laughs> and I love it. I could listen to you talk for a long time and one of the things like you know one of those layers of narrative and, and potentially frameworks that have prohibited connected narrative is patriarchy, for example, and conversation around women and their behaviour and their bodies and how that framework has been used as a control mechanism. Can you explain a little bit about that and, and how that erases humanity in this conversation and therefore is a preventer against the transcending? From, I can only speak from my experience. Um, and so as a Afghan woman, as a young girl who grew up in a set of, set of, you know, often competing cultural expectations, you know, there were elements of my culture from a Muslim background from Afghanistan and, you know, coming into a Western society, obviously living in Australia, that weren't deemed permissible, for example, by my, my cultural standards. And, and vice versa, you know. And so I really had to do a lot of thinking about that. And what I, come, what I had come to understand is there are really strong elements of both uh, supposedly different cultures which actually do the same thing to women, um, which is try to tell them what they can do with their bodies, whether that is to uncover more or to cover. And that's what I was really interested in. I was really interested in this perception, I suppose, in the Western narrative that the Eastern woman is subjugated and a part of this really like patriarchal society where she can't make decisions for herself. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that's been played on by Australian politicians like Pauline Hanson, for example, wearing a burqa into parliament, all that. I mean, that, that's all part of that same assumption of the Eastern woman. And then I also was exposed to um, people who, women who would call themselves feminists in the Western world, who would actually impose all these kinds of conditions on women who chose to, say, for example, wear a veil and, you know, telling them that they shouldn't be doing it because if they were doing it, they weren't liberated and to be liberated, they needed to take it off. That's not really what it is to be an emancipated woman. You need to have the capacity to make decisions for yourself, whether they are to cover or uncover or whatever it is that you would like to do with your body. And so what do you think are some of the most important things to move away from that for women? Because, it, you know, it has traditionally been women being told 
how to behave, what to wear, what they can, can't do, what's, you know, acceptable as a, as a mother, you know, as a daughter, a, a, yeah. as a member of society. What are some of those key things that you see for women to move beyond? You know, it's really tricky because, I mean, when you talk about female and you talk about access to choice, choice is fraught with all sorts of things. So it's not as simple as saying we need to give women their choices, obviously, because sometimes women are in positions where choice comes with life and death consequences, for example. So I think it's, I mean, it's so kind of complex and ingrained, not just in a conversation about gender, but in a conversation about power. For me, the way to kind of begin to undo that is long and deep work. It's not something that you can just say, well, here it is and impose it on people. You need to, we need to start seeing ourselves differently. We need to start having different conversations about who we are as a society. And that begins by unpicking the disconnection that's kind of defining us. And I believe trapping our solutions today. You know, like, and I think this is a challenge, you know, when we're trying to understand different people, it is very hard to put ourselves in someone else's shoes if we really have no concept of what those shoes yes. Ah. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I think that's really important. And I am so adamant that we, we must embrace, we must be okay with differences. Uh, and one of the mistakes I think we make is to demand sameness for, and that's how we define a cohesive society. But until we can say, we're all different, whether it's, you know, even from within a supposed same cultural groups. We're all different. We all have a t totally different experience of life. Uh, and the other thing about empathy is I don't think we need to be able to step into other people's shoes. I think what we need to do is step more deeply into ourselves. And then with that, we understand our own kind of everything that's important to ourselves. And if you do that with humanity and humility, then what you get to is a space where you want the exact same thing for every other person. It doesn't matter that you can't understand their life experience and how could you ever hope to? And it's interesting because in that, you know, you're saying we're not, we're not the same, that we are different. And this does come into the challenges, I think, part of the challenges, I mean, it's multi-layered, mm -hmm. around a conversation about equality, you know, because genders are different. Yes. So there is a difference inherent in genders, which should actually be celebrated. Yeah. But then it's this, the, I suppose it's the balance of celebrating it and not using it as a weapon. I think it comes back to something much more fundamental, and that is, you know, have we created societies that only celebrate male success more so than female success? And so, you know, we, we humans make culture. You know, it's not a natural law of the universe. We've chosen to celebrate the vision of power as something that is brute strength and ego and domination. And I think that ties into a long trajectory of disconnection, like we were talking about, of separation from everything that's natural and sustainable. You know, so unless we can actually fundamentally shift what we perceive power to be, then we are going to be uncomfortable with a difference in what it is to be male or female, or we are going to be in a society which only values or predominantly values male qualities, whatever they are, but, you know, I, I suppose when you're talking about what we're seeing in politics, for example, right now with, like, these strong man leaders and, you know, I, I feel as though they're a symptom 
of the things that we have come to define as desirable. Mm. Well, it's interesting because we're looking at science as an area and a lot of the people in that space have said if they ask children to draw a scientist, they draw a male in a lab coat. So, you know, and if they're asked to name scientific, you know, people who have Mm. made great scientific um, advancements, they name male scientists and quite struggled to name female scientists. So I think 100%, it's exactly what you're saying. So we need to redefine some of those narrative elements. Sure. And in this kind of sanitised version of what success is and what power is, you know, we see whether it's, you know, mental health suffering or physical suffering or even death is perceived as weakness. But, and I think that ties back to the disconnection from the natural order of things that has come to shape our world. So for me, I think, you know, until we can acknowledge with truth what it is to be human, which is to suffer, you know, without without it being a morbid thing, but actually a reality of the natural order of things, then we're not having a real conversation about what we can expect from life. And I think that we'd be much stronger if our narratives took into account that sometimes we're jealous, sometimes we're egotistical, sometimes we're selfish, you know, I, and I think by acknowledging our limits, we can actually have much more truthful, and, and that sometimes we suffer, <laughs> you know, and by acknowledging those things, we can have much more truthful and deeper conversations around the kinds of societies we can build to facilitate and accommodate for all of those things. And if you've got this version of reality that pretends that suffering and flaws don't exist in the human experience, then we're not living a reality. We're living a fiction, um, and it's to our own detriment. Mm. And for me, as you're talking, that really reminds me, as part of this journey, you know, we're looking at the conversation around the the men in this conversation are feeling uncomfortable because they want to be able to say, you know, they want to be able to feel selfish and be enabled to have that experience of, but if if the women get the opportunity, then I'm going to miss out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're really struggling in this gender narrative because how can a man articulate that he understands that he might need to give up power, but it makes him feel uncomfortable without that, without being persecuted for yeah. feeling that. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think um, until we can have conversations that are much more, I guess, much less accusatory <laughs> of men or women, um, then we can't really unpick and move towards the solutions we need. And I don't think it's any good to having half the population feeling persecuted. All parties need to understand it's a really uncomfortable and a thing that's really strongly resisted to give up power. But it doesn't need to happen in an inflammatory or kind of aggressive way, I don't think. We need to have gentler conversations that are gentler on ourselves and what it means to be a human, which is, you know, to be suspicious of giving up power, to want to resist it, that kind of, like, that's all part of what it is to be human. But we can move past and move through those things, I hope, with different ways of working through the problems, and I think the first step is acknowledging. And that's okay. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable with giving up power that Mm -hmm. doesn't make them less of a person. No, it's true. 
Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that. This is a Narrative Network podcast.